LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, you get about 4,000 weeks on Earth. The big question is, how will you spend them? I'm a runner. I have been all my life. I find it's the most time-efficient way to clear my head, reinvigorate my body and mind, all in 25 minutes door to door. Few activities have given me such solace, such a pleasant distraction from the hubbub of my thoughts, the hectic fever of my days. Sometimes though, when I'm out here in the cold, feet stomping, knees complaining, lungs burning, I wonder, why am I doing this to myself? I used to shoo away such thoughts and pick up the pace, telling myself, that with a little focus, I can get under an eight-minute mile, prepare for that next 5K. But these days, I'm trying something different. When I stop having fun, I stop running. Or at the very least, I slow down, catch my breath, because yes, long-term gains are important, but should they always come at the expense of enjoying the here and now? Hang on a sec. Ah, where was I? Right, I learned this lesson about running while listening to the conversation you're about to hear between Next Big Idea Club curator Malcolm Gladwell and writer Oliver Berkman. They got together to discuss Oliver's new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which was chosen by our curators as one of the eight best books published last year. The book begins like this. Macmillan Audio presents... Oh, sorry, meant to fast forward through that part. Here we go. The average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly short. Make it to 80 and you'll get about 4,000 weeks. And so as the poet asked, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? For most of us, the answer is obvious, get busy. If we wanna squeeze all the juice out of the orange that is life, We have to be focused, we have to be intense, we have to do it better. So we eagerly absorb the gospel of time management gurus. We load up our smartphones with apps that promise to declutter our inboxes, supercharge our to-do lists, and streamline our calendars. We strategize and organize and optimize. These are all things Oliver used to do. I've tried dividing my days into 15-minute blocks, dividing my tasks into A, B, and C priorities, I've tried aligning my daily actions with my goals and my goals with my core values. That's a clip from the e-course he made about his book for the next Big Idea Club. He says he tried all that stuff for years, constantly asking, how can I make the most of my time? Until one day it finally dawned on me, what if the problem wasn't that I hadn't yet found the perfect system? What if I was asking the wrong question? What he should have been asking was, what's the point of all this busyness? Why does it feel like the more productive we are, the more there is for us to do? And how come our quest for superior time management leaves us feeling exhausted, anxious, lonely, and inadequate? The American anthropologist Edward T. Hall once pointed out that time in the modern world feels like an unstoppable conveyor belt, bringing us new tasks as soon as we can dispatch the old ones. And becoming more productive just seems to make the belt speed up while the most meaningful parts of life slip further and further away. And so Oliver came up with a radical alternative. Slow the conveyor belt down. If you only get 4,000 weeks, do you really want to spend them racing to get more done? Or do you want to stop and smell the proverbial roses? To put it another way, what if you stop treating your morning run as another joyless entry in your never-ending self-improvement plan and instead think of it as a pleasant jog around the park. Oliver's thesis is that the finitude of our time on Earth forces us to embrace our limitations and make meaning where we can. We're never gonna get it all done. What's more, a lot of it isn't even worth doing. So maybe the best time management hack of all is to stop hacking and start living. Stop chasing pointless productivity and start focusing on what really matters, the things that bring us a joyful sense of purpose. Maybe then, when we reach the end of the line, we can look back on our 4,000 weeks and know they were well spent.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, everyone. I'm Malcolm Gladwell with the Next Big Idea Club, and I am talking today to Oliver Berkman. Oliver, where are you in England or are you in Park Slope? <laughs> I saw some mysterious tweet or something from you which suggested you were on the Yorkshire Moors. Yeah, we moved from Park Slope to the North York Moors, so I'm in a cold cottage in the North York Moors. So I should say, before I ask the next question, that what I thought would be fun to do was to tell the story of how you came to write the book, but I want people to read the book, so I don't want us to spend our time talking about what's in it. I want people to approach it with a kind of sense of excitement, but I do think it's really fun to talk about how you came to write such a interesting book, and I'm going to make you do the one thing that English people hate to do, which is I'm going to make you talk about yourself. Oh, all right, then. Does that fill you with horror or enthusiasm? <laughs> uh, one, one tries to avoid it, but then you sort of get into it because British people are <laughs> egotists as well beneath the surface. Nothing, you know, as someone who grew up with, you know, I was born in England, my father, very proper Englishman, nothing delights me more than prodding the English into being something other than their essential selves. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to try, yeah. This is highly amusing territory for me. But my question was, was the move to Yorkshire an outcome of the kind of thinking that went into writing this book? I mean, after writing a book like this, does one naturally move from Park Slope to the Yorkshire Moors? <laughs> I'm really keen to try to spin the move here um, on those lines. I think, you know, the, the proximal cause is to do with my wife getting a sabbatical time from her university post. And there are kind of those kind of reasons. But I'm not sure I would have been able to, like, go with the flow and do it in a previous incarnation of me when I was more uptight than I am yeah. now. Um, but it's also kind of home for me. I grew up near here, so it's not totally unfamiliar. Where did you grow up in England? In York, in the city of York, yeah. Oh, in York, yeah. So I actually, that's where I wanted to start. There is a little moment in the book, much too short for my thinking, where you talk about your family. I come from a family of people you might reasonably call obsessive planners. We're the type who like to get our ducks in a row by confirming as far in advance as possible how the future is going to unfold and who get antsy and anxious when obliged to coordinate with those who prefer to take life as it comes. My wife and I are lucky to make it to the end of June in any given year before receiving the first inquiry from my parents about our plans for Christmas. And I was raised to regard anyone who booked a flight or hotel room less than about four months before the proposed date of departure or occupancy as living life on the edge to an inexcusable degree. On family vacations, we could be guaranteed a three-hour wait at the airport or an hour at the railway station, having left home much too far ahead of time. Dad suggests arriving at airport 14 hours early, reads a headline in The Onion, apparently inspired by my childhood. All this annoyed me then, as it annoys me today, with that special irritation reserved for traits one recognises all too clearly in oneself as well. Let's talk about the Berkmans. So you grew up in York. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more. Keep going. I was born in Liverpool, actually. I didn't. I, I grew up in York, but I was born in Liverpool. That enables me to say that it was in the same maternity hospital that uh, John Lennon was born in. Uh, but I grew up most of my childhood, adolescence in York. Does that tell you things about the Berkmans? I don't know. What I'm sort of zeroing in on in the passage that you mention is, I suppose, um, coming from a family of compulsive planners yes. who are always trying to, um, you know, leave for the airport another three hours early to make sure that there's no possibility of missing the flight. And I, I kind of contextualize that in the context of my paternal grandmother's flight from Nazi Germany and, and the sort of messages that I think she must have received and then passed on to her children and through one step removed to her grandchildren about the necessity of really knowing what you're doing, making plans, acting when you absolutely have to act in order to forestall disaster and all the rest of that, which is very useful if you're escaping Nazi Germany, but not very useful if you're just like, you know, going on vacation from York. Were both your parents this way or just your mother? That's my father and his 
Oh, it's your father. Uh, this is your his paternal mother. grandmother. Yeah, my um, my mother's family are Quaker, so <laughs> that's another reason why I'm going to be really uneasy about uh, being asked to talk about my emotional life. This is getting more exotic by the moment, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's the mix. Quaker. Well, wait, you haven't answered the question. Was your mother as neurotic as your father about planning and <laughs> my father my father is very much uh alive and thriving and and sometimes hears conversations where i'm talking to people about his uh, neuroses so i feel like i need to backpedal a little bit but no i think um that anxiety about time and doing things at the right time and things like that is more on his side of the the family you know i just have never really deeply thought about I mean, I've thought about my background and my childhood and all these kind of therapy-ish questions, but it's hard for me to see, you know, where the specific influences come from in terms of Jewishness or Quakerness and things like that. You're going you're gonna to have to ask me another question and see if I can. Oliver, you, you literally wrote a book where you clearly read in depth 50 of the 100 of the most interesting philosophical books of the last 100 years. Mm -hmm. And yet when I ask you a simple question about your parents, you're at a loss. This is the most English thing I've ever. This is this is fantastic. This is like. <laughs> What's the question? What's the question? <laughs> now, now I love it that you. Now you're getting all riled up about this. No, my 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 question is. So here you are. For those of you listening to this conversation, Oliver has written what I think is it's safe to say is an absolutely fascinating book on this question of our relationship to time, and how we ought to organize our life around our anxieties about the passage of time and the weight of our obligations and such. And it's a book that, to my mind, demands some interrogation of its origins. It's not like you were doing a biography of Winston Churchill. If you were doing a biography of Winston Churchill, it wouldn't matter who your parents were, right? But in midlife, you've written this very deeply engrossing philosophical thing on some of the most fundamental questions about how you want to live your life. And so I want to know more. I want to know how you got there. And so I want to start with your parents. Yeah. So I'll try and work backwards. I mean, the place in all this subject matter where I really do think about my, my own psychology and the kind of person that I am is in having really, I think, since I was small enough to remember this, this kind of desire to get a handle on time to... I don't want to say to stop time slipping through one's fingers because it's not quite that, but this idea that one ought to be using time in a productive way uh, and that, you know, there was some sort of implicit end point here that you, that you might get to a point where you were being so productive and sort of dutiful in your use of time that you had somehow justified your existence on the planet. Um, when I talk about it in those terms, it strikes me as sort of Calvinist in a way, that kind of idea, which is not quite the same as the Quaker influence on me, but certainly this idea that one has some sort of a responsibility to use time well, which on the one hand, you know, the book is about, but it, I hope in a way it's totally in opposition to that kind of idea of of, of sort of feeling the need to maximize, to wring everything you can out of your time. Um, I remember being told at a very early age by sort of my somewhat hippie-ish and very sort of uh, well-intentioned parents that I only needed to do my best in school. I didn't need to like hit certain grades in order to, you know, be well-regarded or loved by them. You know, I just needed to do my best. And I remember internalizing that message quite opposite from the way that I think it was meant as like, you've got to do the very best that you can do to make the most of the time that you have. So something that I think was meant to be forgiving as a message struck my ears, probably also for reasons for which my parents are ultimately to blame, I suppose, as a sort of an exhortation to seize control of time in some way. Am I helping? Is this, is this illuminating? Very much. No, no, this is interesting. This is interesting. So you're saying that the kind of, the origins of your interest in this question go very deep. So, you know, you and I are both writers. I'm a little older than you. I also come from a culturally mixed parents. I had none of these anxieties as a child, none whatsoever. So what you're describing is not something that every child has. It's, it's quite I would even, I dare say it's a little unusual to have that kind of 
that feeling that even as a child, you had a feeling that you had this obligation to be a kind of effective steward of your energies? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, because I already realized as soon as it came out of my mouth that it sounded like I was, you know, trying to get enormous amounts of work done as a five-year-old or something. That would not be true. But yeah, something about the relationship to time being one that involved duties of some sort or obligations of some sort. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that's that's true. I'm fascinated to hear about anybody who grows up without that. It seems sort of like just in the water that um, that you would sort of, and it clearly, it clearly isn't. I would tell my mother that I was bored and she would say, good. She would say, a little, a little rest for your mind is a wonderful thing. You know, it's fine to drift around. No one's counting. You're seven. Mm -hmm. You know, like, <laughs> so, no, this is I've totally a counter to the, um, but I want to, and so you, and when you, when you observed as a child, things like the compulsion to get to the airport incredibly early, what was your reaction to that? Oh, I think probably just the usual mild um, annoyance at one's parents' foibles. I definitely didn't have any kind of grand philosophical insights about, you know, well, this is an ultimately pointless effort to assuage one's anxiety because you'll never actually get to the position of being certain that you won't miss your plane. So there'll always be that tiny little gap of of uncertainty. That'll That's the context in which I put it in the book. But, um, you know, I don't have a lot of memory of thinking about a lot of this stuff consciously until I was sort of maybe in the sixth form, right? Sort of whatever you call that in the, the States, but just before going to college, that was when it really went into overdrive for me. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely there. Like I definitely, I, I, I definitely had that sort of stance towards time. I just don't think I articulated it. So what you say in sixth form, it goes into overdrive. What does that mean? What's happening then? Oh, that's like, um, I mean, I think part of this is a pretty familiar tale of people who are sort of like high academic achievers and they do really well and they're the best people in their high schools. And then they go to fancy universities that are competitive because they were the smartest people in their high schools. And then it's really terrifying because suddenly everybody is um, as good or much better than you or you think they are. And at that sort of juncture, that was when I really remember getting stuck into the idea that, you know, scheduling out my days and figuring out my exam preparation timetables in exactly the right way was utterly essential because I just needed to be able to keep my head above water in this slightly terrifying environment of uh, Cambridge University, where everybody seemed to be much more confident than uh, I was, although I don't think they were on the inside. And I probably look perfectly confident on the outside. But even there, though, I mean, there's a variety of responses one can have in that situation. This is a common thing for many of us who, are, who have some intellectual ambitions. We get to college, we're thrown into the deep end, and we have an anxious moment. How are we going to keep our heads above water? And there's a variety of responses. Some people quit. Some people mm -hmm. hyper-specialize. Some people spend all the time you know, find an alternate route, they do sports and define themselves that way. I mean, but you chose, you thought the best strategy was... Time management. Yeah. Was time management. <laughs> right? We're, yeah. And then, we're jumping ahead a little bit, when you were at The Guardian, you wrote this column and you spent a lot of time talking about productivity, right? This was a sort of an interest of yours, journalistic interest of yours. Yeah, along with, that column was about all sorts of kind of self-help and psychology of happiness and stuff. But yeah, a big element yeah. of... So this this note in your thinking is, is present throughout your, you know, it pops up in sixth form. It expresses itself in Oxford. You get out of Oxford. Cambridge. Cambridge. Sorry, there, you know, to... Don't insult me. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. Um, how long before you started writing about these kinds of topics? Was it right away or does, was there a break between... No, I went into journalism pretty immediately, but no, it was another sort of six, seven, eight years, I think, before I was writing much uh, about them. And, and it was obviously, I mean, I was aware, I think even then when I started writing about them, that it was a great alibi to be able to write a kind of sardonic newspaper column about these issues that I clearly 
was actually quite invested in. Mm -hmm. It's very nice to be able to sort of address an audience of fellow skeptics and poke fun at bad self-help charlatanry and things like that. But I think it was, I don't think I would have denied at the time that it was uh, some form of therapy as, uh, as well. Yeah. And you, because you write a book, what, 10 years ago called Help. And I was curious, how would you describe the ideology of that book compared to, for example, 4,000 Weeks? What's the difference between what you would learn about your thinking on these matters in that book and what you would learn from reading 4,000 Weeks? I think in that book, in Help, I'd plunged into writing about this world of kind of self-help with its comically grand claims and its, um, you know, all manner of extremely dodgy characters. And I'd sort of salvaged this idea that most of these grand claims were nonsense, but that there are things you can hope to do to, to quote the subtitle of help, to become slightly happier and get a bit more done. And there is something I'm deeply attracted to this kind of idea of really radical kind of incrementalism and radical modesty in the in self-improvement goals. There's something about that that really sort of resonates very deeply with me. And I think that, you know, the general sense you'd get from that book is just that there's a certain kind of sardonic stance to take to this whole field that is on the one hand, you know, not going to fall for its nonsense, but that sees a way through, sees that there is actually some benefit to these ideas, that there is hope for us to change our habits, to change our set points of happiness to some extent. Because, you know, it's like, I'm talking to an audience of Guardian readers who are, I assume are as just as sort of skeptical, borderline cynical as me about the world of self-help and productivity advice. And so in a way, the fun part of that was, was actually suggesting that there was something decent lurking in all of that, rather than the part of the job that was kind of tearing it down and criticizing it. Mm -hmm. Your objection at that point to the self-help industry is simply that their claims are exaggerated. You think they overpromise? is that what? Well, what emerged and was emerging, I guess, I mean, I haven't really thought about it in these terms, but I guess what was emerging into, that would come clear into my next book, The Antidote, is that is that it's, it's not just a sort of grandiosity of the claims made, it's also a kind of overall orientation towards focusing on, you know, positive thinking, trying to make yourself maximally happy, trying to eradicate negative experiences, trying to sort of make fresh starts. I think that's a big sort of theme in, in a lot of this, this idea that you could sort of leave your whole past self behind and sort of launch a new you, which I think I'd probably like tried to do every week and a half for many years of my life and was at that point seeing through the deceptions of. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. There was a period in your life when you feel you were a, you were complicit in all of this. You were a, you were a willing subject for the grandiosity of the self-help movement? Uh, I, I don't mean that I was consuming the books. I wasn't like reading um, Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within at the age of 15 mm -hmm. or anything. Um, no, I mean that I, what I was doing in my life was was chasing a kind of a illusion that I think a lot of that culture does encourage people to chase. So this is the idea that like, you're going to, that sort of from now on, you're going to have these very good habits. You're going to sort of um, 
organize your time or your physical stuff or whatever in a way that is going to be like, okay, from now on, life is going to function properly. And there'll be this sort of moment of truth after which uh, everything will work. Does this, re- I, it probably doesn't resonate with you based on what you said about your childhood. You're probably like, Completely doesn't. This, no, this brilliant. Resume. This is all. This is all brand new to me. This is quite fascinating. What were you trying to? I mean, I don't mean to get too personal, but what were you trying to fix? I mean, so you looked at yourself and you said Oliver is imperfect. I feel I can make him better. What are, What are you dwelling on? What are the imperfections you're dwelling on in this period? This conversation is so much more therapyish than I was expecting. I think that's probably a good thing, but. Um... I mean, it's really striking to me when I look at myself in those days and even today, how much difference there is between different domains of life. Like I was always terrible at sport, say, and like don't I don't think I was ever bothered by that for two minutes. Whereas I was kind of accomplished in academic stuff and felt a very great need to be more accomplished than I was. I mean, I think ultimately it just goes, there are like deep questions of self-worth here, right? This is this is stuff to do with the idea that there's a certain amount of things you need to get done or standards you need to reach in order to sort of justify your existence on the planet. Um, if we're going to get sort of, you know, maximally existential about it. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think a lot of it is what is, you know, the fixed mindset idea from... Uh, associated with uh, the psychologist Carol Dweck mm. and and all that whole set of ideas that each thing, for, for reasons that I don't pretend to understand about myself, each thing you achieve, each accomplishment just creates a new bar that you have to always measure up to from that point on. So it's a very miserable way to be a high achiever because it just sort of... Are you saying, if, if I was talking to 30-year-old Oliver right now and I asked <laughs> 30-year-old Oliver, are you happy? Um, what would he say? I probably, I might have said that I was, but I think that the honest response would have been that I was very close to the point where I was going to be happy, that I just sort of had to clear through a certain amount of outstanding tasks that I had to do, or I needed to sort out a couple of areas of my life. I had to sort of, you know, get back in the habit of exercising or get back in touch with certain old friends. It could be a million different things, but that I was, you know, I almost had everything in working order, but not quite. That's a very familiar feeling to me going back a long, yeah. uh, a long way that it would just need one more push of self-discipline or a few more hours in the day. It's an effort-based notion of where, where self-actualization lies. If you try harder and are just a more efficient about or more skillful in your self-management, you'll get there. That's, that's the kind of implicit notion there. There's a very um, grand thought about oneself in a way, right? Which is that this dominant position of having everything sorted out is within reach. It's just a question of intellectualizing your way to the to the right system for mm-hmm. for doing it. And you could well imagine someone more realistic, sort of never having the thought in the first place that they were ever going to be capable of like getting their life sorted out or yeah. meeting all the demands that were made of them or keeping their inbox clear from day to day. They just they just wouldn't be on the cards to begin with. And then I guess you probably do get people who think that through sheer force of personality or something, they can do that just through being sort of brilliant. But I was definitely a person who thought I could do it, but only once I discovered the right right system for doing it. Yeah. It sounds tragic in, in when it comes out of my mouth. I asked this question only because there was a point when I thought to myself, oh, was Oliver really unhappy? I began to worry about you. That This book was, it seemed to me like there's a reading of this book that 4,000 Weeks is was born in a great deal of, out of a great deal of pain and discomfort with the way, like what you're describing in the book is something that I feel like almost all of us experience in the, you know, the modern world, the the tyranny of these rising obligations, the addiction to our cults of self-improvement, the, you know, the stranglehold of the iPhone on our, you know, I could go on, right? All these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting to me reading the book was, I was like, okay, I recognize that of myself. I recognize that of myself. But I don't recognize the unhappiness part. It just seems to me like, you know, I look at my parents, they just had a different set of anxieties. I don't think their anxieties were less than mine. And my grandparents had their own. You know, I, I sort of think of it all as, my interpretation of it is, is that what I'm going through is just 
normal. It's just the 21st century version of the same thing that my great-great-grandparents went through in the 19th century. Whereas with you, I felt like you felt that there was something genuinely toxic about modernity that was causing people like you, Oliver, to put you in a position of genuine crisis. Am I overreading things? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not sure I, I would frame it in the terms you put it at the very end. I think I don't know that there is something sort of irredeemably toxic in modernity that is the cause of all this. But yeah, I mean, it is a, if you're on this treadmill in a way that you, to any extent, identify your your self-worth with it, and it sounds like that, from what you're saying, that's a very, very low, you're on the very, very low end of have any such link in your mind between your your sort of worth as a human and your and your ability to navigate this and to sort of stay on top of things in this in this crazy situation. But if you do have that kind of linkage, then it is a kind of I mean I don't I don't think most of the time that I was most deeply in this mindset I would have described myself as very, very sad, but it's certainly not a happy way to live. It's certainly a kind of an anxious way to live that places happiness and fulfillment and a sense of peace of mind always in the future and never where you are right now. I'm very happy for you to carry on therapizing me, and I don't want to be guilty of throw, trying to like Britishly throw the ball back into your court. But but the thought that occurs to me that's so fascinating is like I find it really hard to believe that anybody doesn't feel some dose of this today, and I find it especially hard to believe of sort of exceptionally high achieving, accomplished people like you, right? Because it's almost like, what would be the motivation to have written all the books that you've written and to have done all the other, you know, created all the other content? <laughs> I'm sure it's a terrible way to put it, you know what I mean? But, you know, podcasts, um, audiobooks and everything else. What, what would be the motivation to uh-huh. to have got onto that escalator in the first place if you were just completely relaxed about your relationship to the world, which is obviously a terrible thing to say, because the answer could just be the joy of creative expression. And and obviously it should be, and maybe it was in your case. Well, I suspect it's because I may have inherited from my own parents something that fits very much in the theme of your book that I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think of either of my parents as being future-oriented. They were people, we never discussed tomorrow. We only ever discussed today. And I never think about tomorrow, really, not much. Um, my All my memories of my most powerful memories of my parents, my father's no longer with us, my mother is very much, is of them being in the moment. My father would only ever talk about what he was doing, and he would almost never talk about what he intended to do. And my mother was always celebrating the thing that was happening, right? She would, you know, she'd make a fresh scone and eat it. And then she would say something to the effect of, in this moment, eating, you know, not this way, but she would communicate this idea that at this very moment, eating this particular scone, I am insanely happy. <laughs> right? She wasn't thinking about like, I'm gonna gain weight. That never it just never came up. Like, and my best memories of my father are we would go for he, he was an Englishman, so we'd go for long walks on cold days with the dog. And nothing would be said. We would, might walk for two hours and there would be three sentences. The whole exercise was just about enjoying each other's company. There was no other, there was no grand plan. He wasn't trying to get exercise. The walks had no function. They weren't planned. We would get lost epically all the time. It didn't matter. You know, one time we were walking down some frozen river. He thought it was five miles, but he forgot that the river was curved. Wiggly, and so we walked ten miles, and we were all freezing to death, <laughs> and we had to be rescued by some. But it was just like it's just like there's no. So we, that was the and that. So that's I think that's very much the way I I don't really think about. It. I'm not thinking about tomorrow. The question in my mind that where it causes me confusion, or would have caused certainly would have caused the younger me confusion, is then like, and I think I've heard you and read you talking about both your parents, and I think they were both uh, have both been accomplished in their own ways and in their own fields as I understand it and you clearly are like I think the younger me certainly would have assumed that everything you just described then would would mean that you know you might now be you know I don't know working at a surf school in Bali somewhere on a a casual basis or something nothing not there's anything wrong with that 
but you know, I wish. I, <laughs> I, wish. I mean, like, <laughs> sounds quite enticing. It's hard to look at what you do and not see you as driven in some sense. Driven is an interesting way of thinking about all this because I think because it's not a it's a it's so we use that word as a compliment, but it kind of is a little bit suspect when you think about it. Certainly, I was driven to try to solve some personal problem when I was, uh, or a whole set of them, when I was first writing about these topics in a journalistic context. Yeah. There's two other, let's, let's quickly <laughs> move back to, to you, um, since you are the subject of this interview, and I am just a sideshow. I thought that some of the loveliest passages in the book were about your son, it took becoming a father for me to grasp how completely I'd spent my whole adult life up to that point mired in this future-chasing mindset. Not that the epiphany was instantaneous. Indeed, what happened first, as my son's birth approached, was that I became more obsessed than usual with using time well. Presumably every new parent, arriving home from the hospital to face the reality of their incompetence in the matter of child-rearing, feels some desire to spend their time as wisely as possible. But at the time... I was still enough of a productivity geek that I compounded my problems by purchasing several how-to books aimed at the parents of newborns. I was determined to make the very best use of those first crucial months. I wanted to know that I was doing whatever was required to obtain optimal future results in the domain of child-rearing. Except, this now began to seem to me like an astoundingly perverse way to approach spending time with a newborn. Obviously, it mattered to keep half an eye on the future, but my son was here now and he would be zero years old for only one year. And I came to realize that I didn't want to squander these days of his actual existence by focusing solely on how best to use them for the sake of his future one. He was sheer presence, participating unconditionally in the moment in which he found himself, and I wanted to join him in it. When you use a child, a baby, to illustrate, you use that lovely phrase from Adam Gopnik, causal catastrophe. Actually, when Adam Gottbeck uses that phrase, what does he mean? Describe that, the meaning of that notion for a moment, because I want to dwell on this, because I, I think this is it's a beautiful way to understand a central message of the book. He's talking very specifically about raising children, and he's criticizing the idea that the measure of a good or a bad parent-child relationship, a good or a bad moment of a child's life, a good or a bad parenting technique, uh, whatever that is, um, He's criticizing the idea that these should all be measured on the basis of whether they produce good adults at the end of the process, whether they lead to future older people who are better or worse for that relationship or that experience or that parenting approach. Um, and he sort of says, you know, at first it seems obvious that could be the only measure of these things. But when you think about it, it sort of completely neglects the real present moment. And I, th I think this is his example. I've certainly claimed that it's his example. That, you know, on the one hand, the question of whether you should allow your 11-year-old child to play violent video games gets bound up in these questions of like, how good is the research? And does it suggest that um, kids who play violent video games will be violent or, you know, in other ways troubled in later life? But it could be the case that the answer to that was absolutely not, that there was nothing in later life that was sort of negative associated with that. And it could still be that spending that part of your childhood playing violent video games was just not a good way to spend childhood, just mm -hmm. in and of itself. Um, and you can think of a million different examples of this. But that, yeah, that's what you mean by the causal catastrophe, I think, the, 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 the fixation on endpoints as the value of, of everything. 4,000 Weeks is really taking that idea and running with it very beautifully and saying it really applies to all of us in the way we think about our lives. That we're not just doing the causal catastrophe with respect to our small children. We're doing it with ourselves. We're evaluating our behavior and choices based on some, you know, anxious interpretation of their long-term, of the long-term consequences, as opposed to simply, to use that horrible phrase, living in the moment. My wonder when I read that was, did having a child make you kind of realize the, the truth of what Adam was talking about and realize how, how often we make that error in our lives. Yeah, totally. And I think you're totally right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think that parenthood can provide very vivid illustration of something, but I'm not concerned with trying to focus on the things that are, are sort of unique to that experience. It's, it's the, 
It's just a very vivid example of something that is baked into the very idea of using time, right? I mean, this is a sort of a paradox or a tension, maybe, is all it is in, in the book that I try to sort of grapple with. The question is, how can we make the best use of our time? But there is something in the idea of using time that is inherently instrumental, that inherently puts the value, measures the value of any moment by where it's leading. And I don't think we can, I can't see how we could ever get past that. You know, we, there are all sorts of worthwhile things we do in life that we could never do if, if we were insisting on purely just being in the moment with no concern whatsoever for where things were leading. But that particular kind of anxiety that I I'm deeply familiar with, you know, that that says that you're heading somewhere and you can get there. It's not guaranteed that you'll get there. You'll need to use lots of discipline and the right systems and methods to get there, but you will be able to get there. And then, you know, then there'll be peace of mind and there'll be plain sailing. I think that I probably feel it a little more acutely than lots of people, but I think that is sort of deeply baked in to our culture at, in all sorts of contexts. Most ideas bounce off us, but some actually change us. If you want more of those ideas in your life, there's no better place to find them than the Next Big Idea app. We partnered with hundreds of the world's leading nonfiction authors to create audio summaries of their books. We call these summaries Book Bites, and our app features a new one every single day. You can listen to a book bite in 12 minutes or read it in five. There's no other place on the planet where you can listen to book summaries created by the authors themselves. And that's not all we have waiting for you when you download the Next Big Idea app. We've also got professionally narrated summaries of classic books, video and audio masterclasses, ad-free versions of this podcast, and tons of other member benefits. So what are you waiting for? Pause this recording, open your app store, and search for the next big idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Reading your book made me think a lot about um, I'm a runner. Yeah. Fairly serious runner. And runners, you know, are, we're always having a version of this exact same discussion because the great mistake that people make when they would like to be competitive runners is that they think of the daily running that you do, the training that you do, strictly in terms of preparation for some future race or performance. And as a result, you you lose sight of why you became a runner in the first place, right? You You forget that, you know, the joy of like just going for a run is why that's what attracted you as a seven-year-old. Then you wake up and you're 50 and every step you take on a Tuesday evening on your run around the park is simply seen as a, as preparation for the race you're going to do in three months. And you've just now destroyed the, this beautiful thing that you had. Um, you know, so I was reading on my, this is these running message boards. I was reading this morning about there was a, someone was giving advice to young, to people who are starting out and running. And it was the, the best advice was if you're running and you're not enjoying it, stop. <laughs> Like, they don't mean give up running, but just yeah. walk for a while, catch your breath, run a little slower. There's no, like, it, you should be there to enjoy yourself. Like, you, the point of the activity is, well, the moment. It's not building some kind of complicated sandcastle that is going to, you know, make you into a super athlete down the road. But, like, there's something, it's incredibly, it's interesting because it's very difficult to teach that, I'm sticking with running for a moment, to teach that lesson to runners, in fact, I, you know, when I was reading your book, I thought this 4,000 weeks is, could be given to every young competitive runner. And it, you don't mention running at all. It's really, but it's so much about so many different things that we do in the world that we've turned into something other than what they should be by this kind of over-preparation, over-thinking, this over-structuring, this, you know, all the things that you, that you identify in the book as kind of problematic. Part of me wanted you to do a kind of sequel, part two for a young athlete. <laughs> well, I'd be very happy if a copy of it was put into the hands of every young competitive runner in America, but I, I'm not sure I should be writing from a sports psychology perspective. No, but I think that like the, 
there's an important distinction that I want to make there between, I mean, I totally think the joy of competition is, is a real thing and a real value as well, despite being raised as a Quaker on like cooperative board games where nobody wins. So it's not that there's something wrong with wanting to sort of, whatever you do in running, set your new personal best or come in the top, whatever of a, of a race. It's that notion that you need to do that for some reason in you that, you know, that things won't be all right unless you get there or unless you do everything you can to have tried to get there. That there's something to do with your self-worth, your justification. There's something of salvation in the idea that you get it right. So that if you if you triumph in the running or the moment when you get to sort of fold your arms complacently and say that you raised a very excellent child who's now a very successful adult, that in that moment, you'll somehow have been like redeemed. I think there's a, there's a sort of mm. religious feel to some of this stuff that this is, you sort of need to do this. That's the thing I want to target and try to let go of and help other people let go of, I think. I mean, what, to stick with the running example, the people who say, if you're unhappy, slow down, or even walk for a bit, they're saying that that is actually the best way to get your best time when you want to race. That the very things you think that you do that you think are making you a faster runner on race day are not. They are exhausting you, burning you out. You know, there's a whole list of reasons. But relaxing and discovering what is joyful about running is actually what makes you right. the best possible former. Right. That's the paradox of of training is that you you do not prepare for your best race by running as fast as you do in your best race. You prepare for your best race by doing something very, very different, by doing something sustainable and relaxing and joyful. And if it's parallel to other domains with which I'm more familiar, doesn't feel good at first, right? It doesn't feel, it requires a kind of patience that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. It requires sort of letting yourself feel emotions that you might be trying to get rid of by always running your fastest and your hardest and and um, aiming for the, the very best uh, result on every training run. It requires letting something happen that I think is makes people uneasy. Does that make sense? I have no idea if it's true of running. It's, it's true of it does. other things. It does. There's another running idea that I wanted to bring up with you, which I do think as well fits into what you're talking about. The part of what I grasped in reading your book was that what's dangerous or what's what's wrong about the mistakes we make in this manner of of our approach to time is it's uh, to use the metaphor of the treadmill. The point about the treadmill is the treadmill never stops. And there's a couple moments in the book where you talk about the value of of stopping, of taking a break from of honoring breaks, and you know the thing about the Swedes. The Swedes are not just happier when they're on holiday, they're happier when other Swedes are on holiday, which I thought was lovely. It's so perfect. So Swedish, by the way. Of course they would be. Yeah. They're all having fika. I mean, they're just like sitting around <laughs> eating coffee cake and like, you know. Um, what you don't know is to grow up in Canada in the 70s is to be inundated with propaganda about how the Swedes have it better than <laughs> the Canadians. You know this? The, the Canadian government would run ads on Canadian television and radio which exhorted us to be more like wow, the Swedes. That's amazing. And they would, they would be someone with a Swedish accent would instruct <laughs> us about how to live our life better. So the Swedes, it's always been the Swedes. The Swedes have figured it all out, right? These men are about evenly matched. That's because the average 30-year-old Canadian is in about the same physical shape as the average 60-year-old Swede. Run, walk, cycle. Let's get Canada moving again. This message is brought to you by the CFL, CTV, and its sponsors for participation. Runners do a version of this. They do what's called periodization, which is one portion of the year you do nothing, one portion of the year you do nothing but long, slow runs, and one portion of the year you do really intense speed work. And, and it's, that, it's the variety that rescues you. And I, that was a note in your book that I really, and in many ways, it's the simplest of all of the kinds of lessons you're teaching us. It's the most intuitive. That It's the monotony of our neuroticism that's so problematic relentless rather the relentlessness of it yeah i it's uh, i think that sort of that linear idea that you're going to push forward towards this moment of completion of whatever it is you're doing it's so powerful and so yeah one of the things that i i write about 
the work that the psychologist Robert Boyce did among academic writers, looking at you know which academics managed to actually get lots of writing done and which were sort of paralysed by procrastination and so-called writer's block for much of their careers, and finding, among other fascinating findings, this idea that um, the ability to not just to only aim to write for an hour, say, before taking a break, but then to make damn sure that you take the break and walk away at that moment even if you're on a roll, even if it feels like you want to keep going and push yourself forward, because actually the practice of tolerating the discomfort of stepping off, of not giving in to the impatience that says, if I race forward, I might, you know, get to the end of this project, this chapter I might add another 3000 words to my word count and get to feel really great about that. The willingness to forego all of that, to get up and walk away, even though you could produce more, that this was actually an incredibly powerful skill that made their writing appetizing to them day after day after day and made them enthusiastic to get back to it. And it, in aggregate, over the long haul, led to much greater output. Yeah. No, that idea of, of self-improvement coming from restraint and the withholding of effort is what, that's the common link in what you've just described and in the kind of running notion that you get better by having a more balanced and like I say, restrained approach to your to your work. Oliver, this is, um, I hope what we've done is given people a, a taste of why this book is so, it's really engrossing. There's so many ideas that prompt reflection. I found myself stopping. I would read a little bit, then I would stop because I just, there was so much to think about. It's really a, a, a remarkable and lovely little book that I profoundly enjoyed. And my hat is off to you. Um, I hope it's made me slightly better at Making my way in the world. <laughs> it doesn't sound you like you needed the the assistance, but I, oh, I don't we all, know. We all, we all need a little bit of <laughs> I'm incredibly honored. Obviously, it means an enormous amount uh, coming from you. So thank you very, very much indeed. Yes. Yeah, so I, to all those listening, 4,000 weeks, I cannot encourage you to read this more strongly. And from all of us at the next Big Idea Club, thank you for taking the time, Oliver, and take a long walk on the moors for me. I'm, I'm sorry I'm not walking with you. Thank you. I'll do that. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. That was our curator, Malcolm Gladwell, speaking with journalist Oliver Berkman. If you'd like to learn more about 4,000 Weeks, check out the Next Big Idea app. You can hear Oliver summarize the book in just 12 minutes, or you can enroll in his beautiful video e-course. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store today. And when you're done, you might want to order a copy of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I love the subtitle. It's more than an advice book. It's beautifully written and closer to a work of philosophy than self-help. I think you'll like it. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. If you did not enjoy this episode, no need to leave a rating, but you can email us at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our show today was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. Sound design by Woodlands Audio. The folks at LinkedIn are our time management gurus. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Hey, Malcolm? Malcolm Gladwell, wait up, wait up. I know that's you. Hang on, hang on. Slow down, slow down. <laughs>